the book of Numbers, which is in a section of scripture called the Torah. And we need to do a little bit of a quiz today. For those of you who've been around the last few weeks, we are four weeks into our series on the book of Numbers. Numbers is part of a larger body of work called the Torah. Call out for me the five books of the Bible that are part of the Torah. We have Very, very good. Everyone did great. Yes, and Leviticus is the center. It is the third book of the Torah. It is the law. It contains the Ten Commandments and the law of the law of the testimony. And we have this center of the law as the center of the Torah. The two books on either side of Leviticus are Exodus and Numbers. Exodus tells the story of deliverance out of slavery, out of Egypt. And Numbers is a mirror to that book, and it shows the, the, the journey into the promised land. It continues that journey story. There are lots of parallels, as we've been talking about through there. In the book of Numbers, we've been talking about several geographic areas that are, that are important. We have three key areas of geography. So if you've been here the last few weeks, what's, what's this place been over here? Mount Sinai, very, very good. Yes, Mount Sinai. This is where Moses went up the mountain, got the Ten Commandments, and the Israelites camped here for how long before they moved on? One year, yes. They were here, there were 40 days, and they got in trouble. But then they were, they were encamped at the bottom of Mount Sinai for a year, and then they journey into what is the middle of the book of Numbers, which is the desert of... Paran, the desert of Paran, the wilderness. They most of the book of Numbers takes place in Paran. It takes place in the wilderness as they're journeying from Mount Sinai through Paran to the third key area of geography, which was the plains of Moab. Yes, the plains of Moab. And the book of Numbers ends with the Israelites on the banks of the plains of Moab getting ready to enter into the promised land. So it takes them from Mount Sinai to the, to the, to the beginning of, of going into the promised land. It's a 40-year period of time that the book of Numbers covers. And if you were to map out the places in the book, it would map you through these three key places. One of the things that we've been talking about with the book of Numbers is how what God is doing is he is forming his people. He is forming them into an orderly people. He, is make, he took them out of being enslaved, and he says, now you, once you are not a people, now you are a people, and I will show you how to be my people, and I will be your God. And so he structures them, and he orders them. And the first few books of Numbers are all about this order and structure that God is creating. One of the things he does is he has the Israelites, in the book of the law, he puts all these laws about uh, building the tabernacle, which is like a temple that is a tent. Because they're traveling, they're moving around, and so they can't have a, a temple built out of brick. They have to have a temple that is a tent that they can carry with them. So they create this tabernacle that is a tent, and the tabernacle goes in the center of the camp, right among the people. In, this, in the middle of this holy tabernacle, there is a holy place, and a holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, there's the Ark of the Covenant, which is the footstool to the God's throne. And in this tabernacle, the presence of God, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory comes down and inhabits this place. So the presence of God is in the middle of the people. Now, the, there, then, then, there, is, there then is a plan of how everybody is supposed to be 
organized around the tabernacle. So you'll see the tabernacle in the center on this chart here, and you'll see on the right there's Moses and the priests. So those who were priests were right there at the entrance to the tabernacle. And then if you see those dark blue bars around the tabernacle, those were the Levites, the caretakers of the tabernacle, the ones who carried the tabernacle furniture and the tabernacle tent poles and curtains whenever they were moving. We have Marar the, the, tribe of the group of Mamarari, the group Gershon, and the group Kohath. And now pay attention to the Kohath name because we're going to be talking about the Kohathites today, the people that are part of that particular group of Levites. And then the next ring around these concentric circles, you've got tabernacle, you've got priests and Levites, and then you have the 12 tribes of Israel. You see the three tribes on north, south, east, and west. This was the order and structure that God created for them. So whenever it was time to pick up camp and move to a new location, they then resettled in this, in this position in their new place. Always the presence of God was in the center. Now let's talk about the Kohathites for just a moment as we'll, we'll be digging into that today. The Kohathites were specifically charged with taking care of the holy items in the tabernacle. Other people had tent poles and curtains. They had the most holy things. When they were traveling, they were the ones who carried the Ark of the Covenant. They were the ones who carried the table of showbread. They were the ones who carried the, the holiest of the holy items. They had the closest, most important position to the priests. They had the, the job of carrying the Ark of the Covenant whenever it was time to move it. And so it is with the group of Kohathites that our attention is focused today. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Numbers. I'll be reading from the NIV version, or feel free to open up a Bible app on your phone. We won't be reading all of Numbers chapter 16, but we'll be hitting some key passages in it. Numbers chapter 16, verse 1. Korah, son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. Okay, so we have a man named Kohath, excuse me, Korah, and then you've got his, his lineage. And certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram. So Dathan and Abiram are two members of the tribe of Reuben. They were sons of Eliab and An, son of Pelah, became insolent and, and rose up against Moses. So you have three men, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Korah, who's one of the Levites, Dathan, and Abiram, who are part of the Reubenites. And these three men gather together and rise up against Moses. Verse 2 says, With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. <coughs> Excuse me. So you have these three leaders and the 250 people that they had rallied who were all influential people in the community. Verse 3, they came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. They say, Moses and Aaron, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? So these men come to Moses and Aaron, and they say, we have a problem with your spiritual authority. You've taken leadership that we don't think you should have. The, the Lord God has said that we're all holy. 
And so why do you think you're better than us? Why do you think you have more power? Why do you think you have more spiritual leadership? And church, it's technically true that the Lord had said that the people were holy. He had called them out from all the other nations, and he said, you are my holy people. But it's also true that the Lord had structured and ordered the community so that some people had roles of leadership, some people had roles as Levites, some people had roles as priests, and God was the one who had ordered this. But these people have a problem with Moses and Aaron taking on this role of spiritual leadership. And so they decide that they really are the judges of justice. They're the ones who determine what's appropriate and what's not when it comes to authority and, and leadership and power. This is less, you'll, you'll see later in the scripture, this is less a rejection of Moses and more a rejection of God because it was God who had established these roles and responsibilities for the people at this time. It is God who had given them authority and accountability. It, has God, it is God who had called them each to specific work. So they come to Moses and Aaron and they say, you've gone too far. You have more spiritual authority than you should have. And Moses then addresses Korah. And Moses says, all right, Korah. Moses says, I didn't really want this job anyway. God, like, pushed me into it. Moses addresses Korah, and he says, okay, Korah, let's have a test. Tomorrow, we're going to have a test. We're going to go before God. We're going to see how things go. And God is going to show us who's right, you or me. Then he gives them instructions on what to do. Numbers chapter 16, verse 6. He says, you, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, that was like a golden lantern-looking kind of thing that they would put incense in and they would light it on fire, and it would serve as a, something, a tool they would use in prayer. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put fire and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. He says, you Levites have gone too far. They said, Moses, you've gone too far. And he says, you Levites have gone too far. Verse 8, Moses also says to Korah, Now listen, you Levites, isn't it enough for you? Isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them? He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself. But now you're trying to get the priesthood too. It is against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? He's like, Aaron's a nobody. Aaron doesn't matter. Your problem is against what God has established, what God has lifted up at this time. And he says to, Moses says to, to Kohath, you already have a special role. He says, Korah, you have a special role. You, have, you get to serve in the tabernacle. You get to be in the presence of God. And now you want to be in the priesthood too? You need to take the responsibility, the opportunity, and the authority, and the accountability that God's given to you. So we, and Moses addresses Korah and says these things to him. Then Moses goes to address Dathan and Abiram, the two men who are from the tribe of Reuben. And Moses calls to them, he says, okay, Dathan, somebody get Dathan and Abiram, fetch them, bring them to me because I need to talk to them. And they refuse to come. They're like, nope, we're not coming, Moses. Numbers chapter 6, verse 12, then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come. Doesn't that just make your blood boil? Oh, we will not come. Isn't it enough 
that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the desert, and now you want, and now you also want to lord it over us? Okay, did you hear that, church? Where did they say that they had come out of? A land of what? A land of milk and honey. Now, where had they just come from? Egypt. Is Egypt the land of milk and honey? No. They've got this all twisted. They've got this all twisted. They said, Egypt, it was the land of milk and honey. You brought us out of that. You made all these promises and nothing has happened. We know what the land of milk and honey is. We, we know what's right and wrong. They get all twisted. And this is what happens when we get our, our, our authority warped. This is what happens. We get things all twisted up. We think that what's right is wrong. We think that's what just is unjust. We think that what is unjust is just. We think that the land of milk and honey is, is slavery, and we think slavery is the land of milk and honey. Moses is hot. He is hot. He is angry. And so Moses gives instructions. He says, all right, Korah and the Levites, you're going to appear before the Lord tomorrow. We're going to do this test. Bring your censer, put incense in it. And um, these other guys aren't, you know, they're not speaking to him at this point, so he's not saying anything to them. But, but they show up then the next morning. It's test time the next morning. They all come, and these, these men of Korah come with their censers. Like, they're ready to stand Moses down. They're convinced they're in the right. They are absolutely sure that the side of justice is on their side. So they confidently, arrogantly gather in the presence of the Lord, and they stand before Moses. Number 16, verse 19. When Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this assembly so that I can put an end to them at once. The glory of the Lord appears in this moment, and the Lord's like, Moses and Aaron, step aside. I'm going to wipe them all out. Verse 22, but Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, O God, God of the spirits of all mankind, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? They said, okay, hold on, hold on, Lord God, hold on. Well, it's not everybody. You need to wipe out everybody. Like, just be patient here and let, let us intercede and speak on behalf of the rest of the people because they're in the wrong, but not everybody else's. So can you focus your anger where it belongs? Verse 23, then the Lord said to Moses, say to the assembly, move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They move away. Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children, and little ones at the entrances to their tents. And as they stand there in assembly, Moses speaks to them, and he says, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to be the leader at this time. This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do these things. This is how you will know that this was not my idea, but it was God's. 
verse 31. As soon as he, Moses, finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. They went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them, and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, The earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. The ground opens up. The ground swallows these groups of people and their tents and their everything. And they are consumed that way. And then fire comes down on the 250 that are there and burns them up. Everybody begins to run. Imagine the chaos. It says all the Israelites around them fled. They're running. They're shouting. They're shouting. Everyone runs. Where the tents had stood, there was empty space. There were smoldering remnants of those who had been consumed by fire. And everyone runs. And everyone goes home. And that night, they go to bed. How do you imagine that next day going? That next morning, when you wake up, after having witnessed these terrible things, these awe-inspiring things, these disturbing things, how would you imagine the next day going? Would you imagine the Israelites waking up and very humbly saying, okay, Lord, I don't want to do anything to bother you today. Keep me holy. Keep me on the straight and narrow. Perhaps you would imagine them humbly coming before Moses and saying, okay, Moses, we acknowledge that you are God's leader for this time, and so uh, we're, we're just going to do what God's called us to do, and we're not going to try to step out of our lane here. Would you carefully go to the tabernacle and recognize it with awe and have a holy fear of God? You might imagine those would be a good, good ways to approach the next day, but it's not what the people of Israel do. Number 1641. It's one short verse, but it says so much. The next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. So they wake up the next morning and they say, all right, we're mad. And it's Moses and Aaron's fault. It's their fault. They did this. They're responsible for the deaths of these people. Now, let's just recap here, church, because they've missed the pretty major thing that was, they were supposed to catch. The major thing that they were supposed to catch was that God was proving that God had chosen Moses and Aaron. God was proving that he had ways of doing things, and God was proving his strength and his power to, to bring judgment on those who were not in submission to him. <laughs> Israel had said to Moses and Aaron, you've taken too much spiritual leadership, and God said, no. They've taken what I have called them to in this season. So the people of Israel, they, here they are, they're gathering for a second time, on their own this time, to gather in front of Moses and Aaron 
to complain, to grumble. Just so you know, if you're reading through the book of Numbers, anytime you come across the word grumble, that's a cue word that they are going to be in rebellion against God. So keep grumbling and rebellion as connected in your minds because that's what's, that's what's happening here. As they gather together to complain about Moses and Aaron, once again, the glory of the Lord appears before them. And once again, the Lord says to Moses, Moses, stand aside because I'm going to put an end to these people. And once again, Moses intercedes. Once again, Moses intervenes. Once again, Moses gets in between the, the just judgment of God and the people. Moses says to Aaron, Aaron, quick, take your censer and go intercede for the people. Go make atonement for them. And so he sends Aaron out to be among the people because there is a plague that in this moment the Lord God has sent to start striking people down. And Moses sends Aaron out into the midst of where this plague is happening, and Aaron takes his position between where the plague has hit and where it has not hit. And the scripture reads that Aaron stood between the living and the dead. Aaron stood between the living and the dead. And the plague only stops when Moses and Aaron intercede, interject, intervene for the people. Aren't you glad that we read the whole Bible at this church and not just the parts we like, not just the parts that are messages of hope? We have to read the whole scripture, even parts like this about the rebellion of Korah, because this is also God's word. And reading the parts of the Bible that we don't like, that make us uncomfortable, that challenge us, are, are, are things that help us understand that our perception of God Maybe, maybe it needs to be adjusted a bit. That there's more to understand about who God is than perhaps what we might like to think. So today, I'd like to make four observations about Korah's rebellion. Four observations about Korah's rebellion. And I'll begin by saying, if you are troubled by this story, that's good. That's what God wants. He wants us to be bothered by this story. Point number one, the justice of God should trouble us. It should trouble us. The justice of God is something that we should have a holy fear of. The justice of God isn't something, see, we, we, we think we like God's justice because we think we know what it is all the time, and so we think, oh, if God will just bring justice, then he's going to punish everybody else who did me wrong, and we forget about how he's going to deal with us. But the justice of God should trouble us. This situation is severe. It is meant to induce grief. It is meant to show that there's corporate responsibility for sin, that it isn't just an individual matter, but that how our community functions matters. The, the whole culture here has been steeped in a value set that's different from God's, and it, this value set leads to death. Human corruption, human rebellion, human resistance and hard-heartedness against God isn't just an individual matter, it's also a, a community matter. And we should be troubled 
by the fact that we misjudge what justice really is. God's justice in this particular case looks like the opening of the earth and the swallowing up of the rebellious. The justice of God looks like the fire that came from heaven and consumed 250 people. That's the holy justice of God. The justice of God looks like the plague that struck the rebellious people. This is righteousness. This is holiness. We, we think we love justice. Korah thought he loved justice. Dathan and Abiram thought they loved justice. They thought they had it. They thought they knew it. The grumblers of Israel were convinced that they knew justice. But what they really knew was justice as defined by themselves. And I wonder if maybe the best thing for us today, the best thing that could happen today, is for us to leave this place troubled over God's justice. Troubled about what this might mean for us. Troubled with a sense of, of humility that maybe we're not always right, that maybe we aren't always the ones who define justice. Maybe we aren't the ones who define right and wrong. Perhaps it's good for us to have a little bit of holy awe of God. Perhaps it's good for us to be in awe of who he is. The justice of God should trouble us. The second thing that we learn from Korah, the, the account of Korah's rebellion is number two, we frequently rebel against God's boundaries for us. We do this all the time, kind of a lot. God had clearly given boundaries to the Kohathites. He had said he had given them responsibility. He had given them both authority and accountability. And when it comes to leadership of any kind, we are given authority and we are given accountability. And God had clearly given them authority to do things like, Kohathites, position yourselves right outside the tabernacle. Kohathites, take care of the holy things. He'd given them authority that others didn't get to have. And then he'd also given them accountability and boundaries. He said, don't enter with the high priest into the Holy of Holies. Don't take on other priestly roles. This is what you don't do. This is what you do do. He had given them very clear boundaries on what he was supposed to do. And just as we read earlier, number 16, verse 9, Moses says to them, is it enough that God has separated you and given you this, this beautiful work to do? He's, he's brought you to himself, but now you're trying to get more. They already had so much. They're already in the inner circle. They're already very as close to the Holy of Holies as someone who wasn't a priest could get. And just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they had been given something beautiful, but they were dissatisfied. Just like Adam and Eve had everything they could have wanted, they'd been given this incredible space of Eden, but they wanted more. And when the serpent came to Eve and said, and if you, if you eat of this fruit, you can be like God. Eve said, I want more. I want more. God in the Garden of Eden had established boundaries. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, how in the center of the Garden of Eden was the tree of life. Adam and Eve were put in the Garden of Eden to tend the garden and to tend Eden, to do the work of Eden. 
So it's the tree, it's Adam and Eve tending the community, and outside of Eden is the wilderness. The same picture is mirrored here with the tabernacle, where the tabernacle with the, is in the center of the community. Moses, the priests, and Levites are surrounding the tabernacle, and they are to tend to the tabernacle and the community. And then outside of the people is the wilderness. We have the same mirror picture, where God has established boundaries for his covenant people. God has said, this is what it looks like to live in my presence. This is what it looks like to live outside of my presence. There is an in-boundary and an out-boundary. God has given authority within certain boundaries, just like he gave authority to Adam and Eve, just like he gave authority to priests and Levites, within certain boundaries. We as fallen people have a tendency to rebel against the boundaries that God has given us. And scripture is going to show us over and over and over and over again how humanity's rebellious nature constantly rises up in opposition to God. Blessed is the person who sees this in themselves and pays attention. We frequently rebel against God's boundaries. The third observation is that the stakes are higher for those with more responsibility. The more responsibility you have, the more is at risk. This is the logic of what's happening in this story. The stakes are higher for those who are in closer proximity to the presence of God. Uh, so in the book of Numbers, there are seven rebellions. There, in, in this whole book, there are seven different times we read about this rebellion, this rebellion, that rebellion, that rebellion. There are seven of them. In this sermon series that we're covering over these, these few weeks, we're covering just three of those key rebellions. Last week, we talked about one of them. It was the, the t- remember the 12 spies? And the 10 people went to go spy out Canaan, and 10 s- or 12 went to go spy out t- Canaan. 10 said, no, we don't have faith to go into the promised land. It's too scary over there. And two of them said, yes, it's good. We should go in there. And this was a rebellion that represented all of the people, where they refused to enter into the promised land in rebellion against God. Then today we have the rebellion of Korah, and it's the rebellion of the priests. Next week we'll talk about the rebellion of Moses and Aaron. And so if you look at the concentric circles around the tabernacle, you have the rebellion of the the 12 spies, which represent all the people of Israel, You have today the rebellion of Korah, which represents the the inner circle around the tabernacle. And next week, we will have the rebellion of Moses and Aaron, which, which is even closer to the tabernacle. And we have this picture in the book of Numbers of these rebellions building upon each other, how there is an increasing severity of consequences, that this is a big consequence for for these people out here who rebel. It's a bigger consequence for these people who rebel. And with Moses and Aaron, as you'll see next week, it's an even bigger consequence for those who will rebel. The whole community is unraveling from the outside in. And we repeatedly see the failure of people to be faithful to God, the failure of people to live in the holy presence of God. Failure at every level. So the end of this chapter ends with this plague that I mentioned a few minutes ago. And I'm I'm not going to read this part of the scripture. But in this plague, what happens 
is God sends this to wipe people out. And Moses sends Aaron to go and intervene. Moses and Aaron stop the flood of justice that God is sending. Aaron, according to the scripture, makes atonement. He puts his life in the path of death. And he comes to stand in between the living and the dead. The people need someone to stand in the gap between life and death. And because Aaron intercedes, because he intervenes, because the two, Aaron and Moses, go in and they, they call out for an intervention, the rest of the people are saved. And the people of Israel will show over and over and over again that they need an intercessor. The whole message of the holiness of God, the whole message of the tabernacle of God, is this message, uh, the whole message of God in the Garden of Eden walking among his people, is this message of God who wants to be with his people. God who wants to be, who wants us to be in his presence. God who says, I am holy, and this has to be a certain way. God wants to be in community with us. He wants to make us holy. He wants to make us like him and redeem us from the disfigurement of sin in our souls. And we will see that there is no way that we can get out of the path of death without an intercessor. Point number four, the fourth and final point, is we need an intercessor to bridge the gap between our rebellion and God's good life. The life of God is so good, church, that it can't coexist with fallenness and evil like we think it can or like we think we want it to. The life of God is so good beyond what we can imagine. And God says, I want you to have this good life so much. So Moses and Aaron are the intercessors here. But as I mentioned a minute ago, the day is going to come when Moses and Aaron are going to fail as intercessors. When even their leadership won't be enough. When even what they do will fail. And the story of humanity through the scripture, from Adam and Eve and the fall of the garden until the time of Jesus, is that we need someone greater than Moses. We need someone greater than Aaron. We need someone who can do what they did, but more. We need someone who can do what they did, but consistently. We need someone who would do what they did, but on a level that is bigger than one nation. To do what they did, but on a cosmic level. Not to redeem only one people or one nation, but all people, all nations, and even all creation. God will make possible the gift of his good life because of the righteous intercession of the only mediator that is fully capable of bridging that gap between rebellious people and holy God, Jesus. God will make it possible for us to have the gift of good life. Jesus is the only one, he is the only one who can mediate the way that we need him to. He is the only one who can rescue us out of our rebellion, who can usher us into the promised land, the good life that God has. Hebrews chapter 9 
describes Jesus as the mediator. How Jesus came to earth appointed by the authority of the Father to mediate between humanity and God. And Hebrews 9 describes how Jesus went through a tabernacle, and it said it wasn't a man-made tabernacle. It was a, it was a spiritual tabernacle. And he said Jesus went into there, and just like Moses sacrificed calves and goats, and Moses took the blood of those animals in order to bring purification to the people because the scripture says without the cleansing, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That was all insufficient to do what we needed to have done. And Jesus didn't enter the most holy place by the blood of goats and calves, Hebrews says, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood by his own sacrifice. He became the mediator and the sacrifice. And it's only by the mediating work of Jesus that we can be rescued out of our rebellion, that we can be rescued out of our repeated and generational hard-heartedness. The hard-heartedness and resistance that is resistance that has followed us from generation to generation. It is only through Jesus that we can be saved out of that. It is only through Jesus that we can be cleansed from the acts that lead to death. And it's only through Jesus that we can enter into God's good life. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus is our only hope. And Jesus, when he sits with his disciples, he takes the bread and he takes the cup and he says, this is the body and the blood of a new covenant. And he says, no longer will you have the tabernacle, 